Hey, everybody. Welcome to America This Week from the Harris Poll with John Gersma, that's me, and Libby Rodney. Libby, what's going on? Hey, John. How are you doing? Happy Friday. Happy Friday. You've been on the road this week, right? On the road and drinking lots of caffeine. <laughs> it's the only way to do it. <laughs> I feel it. I feel it. I'm right with you. Hey, listen, uh, for, for folks that are listening in, if you're new to our program, we're pollsters who... I guess, Libby, I'd say we take a, a weekly look at society. We try to kind of bring society into the C-suite, kind of bring it into business and help people understand what's kind of going on in the outside world because everybody's busy. And, um, you know, I, I'd i like to think, we'll see, we'd love some feedback, but we try to be umpires. We always try to argue both sides of the data and just sort of bring an objective point of view. So we're going to try to do that now in the next half hour. Uh, we welcome polling ideas also, right, Libby? Yeah, absolutely. If you have any ideas or feedback, we'd love to hear it. Yeah, just drop us a note on LinkedIn. And uh, if you like our banter, please leave us a review. Okay, Libby, we are in wave 126 of weekly tracking for America this week. And the genesis of this is we were sitting around one day and uh, COVID started. (laughs) (laughs) And we thought this is so dynamic, moving so quickly, we really got to get a pulse. And obviously, it's evolved past uh, covid into a lot of different issues. We're going to talk about a bunch of things this morning. One of the things that uh, I think we have a theme, right, Libby, around America's health checkup. What's that all about? Yeah, it's about our financial health, our mental health, how we communicate and, you know, our innovation health as a, as a country. So, you know, we started with the pandemic, but we continue to talk about health. <laughs> all right, cool. Well, we'll get into all those stories. We've got kind of five stories that revolve around uh, those themes. And I'm going to Hold them back. One of the ones I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to tease it. I, I'm dying for you to explain to me what slack explaining is. So, oh, slack explaining, yes. <laughs> Cut rolls right off the tip of your tongue. There it is. <laughs> um, so, what we do always is we start with the weekly numbers uh, from the from the Pulse of America, and here's kind of what we're seeing this week. So, Libby, not surprisingly, nine out of ten Americans, eighty nine percent, remain to be uh, very concerned about the economy, inflation and recession. That's up two points from last week. This obviously comes as the Fed raised interest rates yesterday by uh, by three quarters of a, of a point. And just for context, that was the most aggressive rate hike since 1981. The other macro data point beyond our polling is that the American economy shrank 0.9% on an annualized rate in the second quarter. And that is obviously sparking fears that we're close to or already in a recession. And if you talk to our, our Harris poll respondents, uh, they think we're already in a recession. 82% thought it was very likely that we'd be in a recession uh, headed into one this year. But I think, Libby, the important part, and I want to get into this first story around our financial health, is I think there seems to be a, a, a pivot that's going on where um, American workers, American households, they're sort of looking at their spending Clearly, the, the consumer is propping up the economy. Spending remains really strong, according to a lot of different factors. But we're starting to see cracks in that. And we're starting to see new strategies emerge. I mean, one of the things we saw this week is that 78% of Americans are now concerned about affording their living expenses. That continues to tick up at one percentage point from last week. And then right in the background, creeping up again is COVID. Uh, 66%, two-thirds are concerned about a new wave of COVID brought on by the BA variant. And obviously that intersects with um, economic concerns of, of interruptions in, 
in jobs, interruptions in, in customer service, et cetera. But let's kind of get in and talk about this financial health. I mean, I think one of the really interesting stories this week was the new poll that we conducted with the American Staffing Association, the ASA. And this was covered in Bloomberg and The Hill. And, you know, Libby, inside these numbers, I thought was really interesting. You had 58% of employed Americans concerned that their paycheck won't cover their needs now. The same number now say they're cutting back on expenses as they look at the next six months ahead. And then really the thing, I'd love for you to kind of give me your take on this, this whole idea, what does this mean that one job might be enough anymore? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's this rising trend of polywork. Um, and um, that actually people are seeking more lines of work and, and seeking other jobs. So 28% said they'll look for a second job. Um, and three in 10 said they'll plan to seek a job change in the next three, uh, next six months, which is what's interesting kind of about poly work, John, is because we're in these like remote jobs. Um, it's become a lot easier in some cases to actually work two jobs and, and, um, and work it out even though employers not, do not always like the, the fact that employees are taking on two jobs at the same time. That's incredible. So that's sort of turboed by, uh, by the, the hidden hybrid worker. Hey, by the way, I was out uh, last night for a, a couple's dinner with our good friend, Melinda Santa, and she had a, she had a great concept. She talked about the trend around the quiet quit. Have you heard about that? No, it's sort of you just sort of fade. <laughs> you kind of do what you're doing right now, which is like <laughs> workers are taking on uh, poly work and then they start to sort of move on to the next thing. Uh, you'll have to pull. On By the that. way, I don't think poly work is like such a negative thing. I think there's a lot of um, upside into poly work if employers think about not owning workers for a 40 hour week, but really thinking about. What's their input? What are the objectives that they have to meet? And then because there might be different ways people are fulfilled, right? Like you might be a great tech worker, but also want to be an author and you can hmm. get poly work into that in, in kind of different ways. So I, I don't have a total negative take on poly work, uh, but I do think people are exploring poly work as an option to um, offset the, the recession that we're likely to be entering or already in. That's really interesting. It's also presumably good for the economy, right? You don't have people hiring additional workers. You've got basically people sort of adding more labor to their their payroll. Well, talk a little bit about um, what's kind of happening in the macro numbers. You're seeing some interesting trends around how consumers are worried about the future and belt tightening. Yeah. Um, so the there's the um, Conference Board Consumer Confidence Index that declined for the third straight month in July. Um, and then nearly half of consumers in July at the NRF, NRF said that because of rising prices on every, everyday necessities, they're switching to cheaper alternative mm. store branded food and beverages, um, gain one percentage point in market share over those weeks. And consumers are just timing their purchases around discounts. So there's a huge, um, you know, activation around Amazon's Prime Day. Um, so, you know, just thinking about the role of when consumers buy, what they're going to buy. I mean, I think what's kind of interesting about this, John, is 
because we just survived economic belt tightening during during the pandemic to see, okay, how are we going to survive this? Actually, I think that our strength and our ability to do that again is quite high. Um, so I, I, I feel like the as we walk into this recession, people are like, okay, it's time to tighten the belt again. All right, that means I'm going to go out to dinner less. I'm going to cook more. I'm going to do these things. These skills that we just learned, not in a recession, which usually comes every seven years, which, you know, this one has been much more extended, but that we got to experience during the pandemic. Um, so I think it'll be really interesting to see what these spending uh, habits are and how people are kind of end up fiscally responsible on the, on the, the backside of it. You know, we've had some real splurge spending, but... What do you what do you think about that? That's super interesting. The idea of sort of we've got this built in resilience as a society that that might be emerging. You know, we've we went. I was just thinking about you know the pandemic was a whatever a I think it's the term is a black swan, right? This once in a lifetime event, and then you have for at least the majority of the American population who never lived through a recession, yet another sort of you know massive life event that is a real interesting concept that where maybe we're now kind of in this period we did see that during covid libby remember like the idea that americans are just sort of surfing the variants right you'd find little windows of opportunity yeah. around the drop the drops well it, it's interesting like um where uh like a, a beauty salon i go to in new york you know the the woman was worried about monkeypox. Like she's really actively concerned about monkeypox because she's like, what if the government decides that it's, it can be, mm-hmm. um, contract or contacted through skin and then they shut down my business and then I have to survive. So she's like, I'm actively saving for a day where monkeypox might shut down my business. So I think also like, and she's, she's fairly young, probably 25. Like People are actively thinking about, well, what happens if there's a next new pandemic or there's a next recession? Like everyone's just kind of in this mindset of like, it might might not be here. So splurge a little bit, but save a lot, you know? That's super interesting. And I think this gets amplified, you know, there's a correlation at least in this other data that we released this week, right? With um, personal capital and, and CNBC, but we asked um, different <laughs> cohorts, you know, what salary do Americans say they need to feel financially healthy? And not surprisingly, Gen Z, who are you know, coming into the workforce largely, and maybe we should define these ages, Libby, too, by the way, because I think everyone's sort of like, where are the, where are the numbers? Gen Z are roughly what? So Gen Z right now are Americans under 24, um, usually like, like about 14 to 24. Um, millennials are... 25 to 41 gen x are 42 to six like 59 i think and then boomers are 60 to um 75 or or maybe i'm i gotta make sure i get that that's pretty good for your memory that's pretty good yeah you must be be a strategist um (laughs) a sociologist well anyway what was interesting in this question we asked these different cohorts again what they salary they needed annually to be financially healthy. And Gen Z was looking at 172,000 on average, (laughs) which is over twice as much as what boomers say they need at 78,000. And then they were about a one and a half higher than Gen X. Gen X said they needed 112,000. And then they were about 30% or so more than millennials at 133,000. So, I mean, Libby, it seems... (laughs) 
Like, I, I love that concept about resilience and sort of built-in uh, attacking yeah. as you look at the future. Because I think we look at a lot of these numbers, we get a little negative, but maybe this is just sort of, okay, we're prepping. But, well, yeah, but I, I mean, I think what's interesting, though, John, here, just to pause for a second, is 171,000 Gen Z, so people under uh, under 25 believe that, you know, you have to get to 171,000. The average income in the U.S. is 56,000. And even when you add in, like, <laughs> master's degrees and everything, maybe you get to 90,000 on average. But, you know, there's a huge jump there. Um and then there's, you know, that there's that study on happiness oh, it has to be over a decade old, but said that if you hit 75,000, you're, you're pretty happy. And then you're just beyond that. It, it's fine. Um, but it's just interesting that Gen Z is setting such a high benchmark of, of where their wealth needs to be or, or what they're looking forward to. Um, and why do you think and, that and is? So well, I think maybe student loans are a, a big one. So you're coming in with a lot of debt. You might be coming in with eighty thousand dollars of debt right like i gotta pay that off um and then i think there's also you know they've grown up in these wild stories of what you can get paid in the tech industry um which starting salaries in tech industry can be one hundred twenty-five thousand. you know so you get kind of your your point of of salary ranges changes right um and it changes per generation of how you grew up as long as you're doing better than your parents Although Gen Z is the generation that is expected not to do as well as their parents. So it's, it's just interesting in terms of where expectations of salary are versus where reality might hit and some of the challenges that Gen Z might face along the way of getting to that $72,000 range. Interesting. And with a little bit of inflation probably built into these numbers as well. But, um, 100%. Interesting. Uh, so there's another thing. Can you talk me through this Northwestern Mutual Harris poll? Because I do think there's part of this planning, this resilience you were talking about that, you know, American households are really like there's things inside their control, right? You just said they can switch their brands. They can kind of tighten their belts in, in different ways. But there's a whole other side to financial health that they could use some work. Yeah. So um, in a poll that we did with Northwestern Mutual Health, we found that more than six in 10 Americans say that their financial planning needs improvement, yet only a third seek help of a financial advisor. So they're kind of, you know, out there saying their financial health could use some help, but not going to the doctor, basically. And nearly one in five um, adults say that they didn't have an advisor before COVID-19, but now they have either started working with someone or plan to moving forward. And what's interesting there is, especially with Gen Z and millennials, you see 74% of them say their financial planning needs improvement versus 62% of all adults. Um, but millennials in particular, I mean, they're at an age where they're getting older, uh, accumulating more wealth. You know, some of them are in their mid to late thirties. And so 40% of them are now working with a financial advisor, really trying to, you know, assess all the things that, that they need to figure out. Um, what's interesting is Eight in 10 people who get professional help say they, they were able to build their savings during the pandemic. And among people who do not work with advisor, only half are able to do that. So just having that, that kind of coach that keeps you on track seems to be pretty useful for people. I mean, we see actually very similar stats in nutrition, um, fitness, you know, all the things that it's like you want to be healthy, but having that third party kind of come in and tell you like, Here's here's what's happening in reality. Here's the goals that you need to have. Um, helps keep 
people kind of aligned in, in that way. So that's really interesting. interesting. Our, our friend Dami Rosano from Harris and I, we just finished a study uh, for a client and, and found that financial literacy was something that parents really wanted to instill in their children because they didn't think they were getting it um, yeah. in the uh, in the in the education system. I think that's you know that's super interesting. How much of this could also be sort of retail investing and saying, you know, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to I'm going to GameStop this thing, is <laughs> yeah. crypto and all that, or is, is this just really a, a, a gap in in sort of what we understand? Because it seems like there seems to be significant upsides if financial advice could come into American households. Yeah, and I think actually that's that's a big place that uh, robo advisors have been playing and and trying to provide more access because traditionally that access to financial um, management or advisory services have, has been at a certain wealth point for people. And they don't even go to a, a lot of people who don't have money don't go to a financial advisor, right? Cause they're like, what's the point? Yeah. Um, but that's where I think that's where a lot of robo advisors or AI or other services and tools, fintech based tools can kind of help and bring more access and advisory services the same way that you've seen um, well-being, mental health, physical mm -hmm. health kind of be democratized, right? Uh, there just seems to be a, a big platform for that to improve financial health um, and, and give more access there. Well, that, that bridges to our next story around around mental health. And clearly, you're going to see significant overlaps between how people state their financial health and their mental health. But this one, to me, I think was was really, uh, you know, sort of eye-opening in, in, a, in a really important way. Uh, this is obviously July is Minority Mental Health Awareness Month. And one of the polls that we just released this week with our CVS Health Harris Poll National Health Project, and uh, this was released um, in Forbes. We'll actually put these articles, Jack, our executive producer, if we could put these in the show notes, people might want to go back and refer to them. But um, I thought this was was really compelling. I mean, for what you're, what you're going to see, what I'm going to lay out is the the, the profound impact of, of mental health uh, sort of bearing the brunt among Black and Hispanic Americans in particular. And these numbers are, are, are really stark. Uh, four in 10, first of all, uh, Hispanic Americans and 29% of black Americans rated their mental health as poor. So you just start right there with that. And that is versus uh, only one in five, about 22% of white Americans. So, you know, that's been reported elsewhere. But I think what was important to see is how high these numbers have gone up, Libby, for Hispanic Americans on that same stat. They're up 10% pre-pandemic and black Americans are up 12% on rating their mental mm -hmm. health as poor. So the pandemic has really shaped this. And then kind of similar to what you were just talking about with, with finances, there's a whole question around access. Black and Hispanics Americans were more likely to say they wouldn't know where to start uh, in terms of talking to a mental health professional. Uh, black Americans at 51%, Hispanics uh, at 43%, versus whites at 29%. So again, you see this like question and then even um, more sort of compelling, this is sort of similar to your financial points, Libby, they do tell us that they would like to talk to a mental health professional, but they can't afford to do so, right? That's 50% of black Americans, 41% of Hispanic Americans, again, versus less than a quarter of white Americans at 22%. And 
all of this then has a compounding effect. I won't go into all the stats, but basically black and Hispanic, Hispanic Americans report all these sort of causal factors on their mental health from their financial situation, which is sort of at two thirds for, for both blacks and Hispanics versus only 42% for whites. And then other macro issues, whether it's social unrest, their jobs, and even racial discrimination. These numbers are all anywhere between sort of a third to twice as high um, for black and Hispanic Americans. And, and Libby, really their workplaces really aren't helping, are they? No, in fact, 62% of black Americans and 54% of Hispanic Americans report their job as negatively impacting their mental health versus um, 38% of white Americans. So you can really see who the workplace is being set up for in that way and, and thinking about that. Um, and for those employed, only um, small percentages of black and Hispanic employees say their employer openly talks about mental health at 35% and 34% respectively. So there's a big opportunity there to bridge those gaps for employers um, looking to make sure that the mental health and well-being of their Black and Hispanic employees is taken care of. Can I ask you a question on this? Because these numbers, you know, we sort of see these profound gaps. And, and Dami was on earlier in our program and talked about her report with uh, our partners at Hugh on, on these yep. numbers. I mean, like, what is going on here? So much discussion is obviously happening on mental health right now in our culture, and it's so good and so important. At the same time, we're talking about DEI inside corporate boardrooms. You know, we just did our, our big um, project at, at the Milken Institute and found that three quarters of companies said that they were aggressively working on their DEI initiatives. Obviously, we have movements like Black Lives Matter, and yet this feels like another instance where somehow public policy or even in businesses don't seem to be focusing uh, on delivering this, whether it's in their equity DEI policies um, to help people of color. I mean, what, what do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, so. We've done a lot of work in this space, and I think what you see overall is there needs to be long-term commitments to uh, communities of color, employees of color, and 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 ways to work it out. So I think, you know, you have like basic things where people don't feel seen and heard and reflected in society. There's ways of, of changing that um, from public policy point of view. I don't know, John, if you've seen the work all throughout New York, um, the We Are More campaign, which is a campaign about um, showcasing like AAPI's contributions to the U.S. and and the world um, about you know showing them as individuals so that we can get rid hmm. of some of the harassment and the New York City like crime that's been um, targeted against um, the AAPI community. But you know showcasing that, that's Asian, Asian American Pacific Islanders, right? Yes, AAPI. yes, yes. Yeah, sorry for the uh, acronyms, but you know like so so elevating people, communities of color, and showcasing them through art, showcasing that they belong, showcasing that they are um, building a lot of uh, contributions to society. I mean, that's just one small factor, but then also thinking about how do you set up workplaces? Like we've talked about this in the past, John, where it's like hybrid and remote work are the way that um, 
are had a big benefits for mm-hmm. DNI initiatives in the workplace. Yet we hear nonstop that people just want to bring people back into the office. So it's like, mm-hmm. you know, catching up on change and thinking about how do you think about the mental well-being of your employees? Um, and what kind of work in space do that they want to be in? How do brands think about that? How do they give them recognition? And not just, I think really importantly, it's not just during the specific month of Black history or Hispanic totally. um, appreciation, but it's like, it's like, what are the long-term commitments that you're going to make to this community? Because the mental health challenges, what you can see in your data and the data that we've been talking about, it's, it's a compounding effect. All of these things are layered on top of each other and then compound over the long term and then have a huge mental health impact. And then when you throw a pandemic on it, it just adds fire to it or any kind of um, social justice issue. Right. And so it's like, what's the long term commitment to solving that problem, I think, is what people are really looking to see. And that's where brands are really going to stand out and make a difference. Absolutely agree. And then, you know, obviously, Mental health, it's phenomenal, the growth and awareness inside companies, but it feels like it needs to be far more segmented culturally, right? This isn't just one size fits all with mental health. How are we looking at this by age, by by race and our employees and particularly really dialing up on these issues? Because the other part of this is that mental health actually turns physical. You know, we, Mm -hmm. we did this study also this week with the foundation for um, chiropractic progress. And I, I thought this was some of the more interesting data that we released with Harris this week. But, you know, nearly half of U.S. adults, 44%, report that they experienced and have experienced physical pain. Um, and they believe this was worsened or amplified due to mental or emotional pain. And the, the numbers are, again, pretty compelling. You know, more than half of 18 to 34-year-olds, 53%, and even more, 61% of 35 to 44-year-olds who uh, were participants in our study reported having experienced physical pain they believe was worsened by mental or emotional pain. And uh, mm-hmm. those numbers are really significant. I mean, that's like even 65 plus and a quarter of them. And women, again, report worse physical pain due to mental and emotional pain at 39%. And I mean, Libby, there's an aspect to this too with parents, right? Yeah, I mean, parents um, have been missing work because of the the mental health crisis of children that's happening right now. Um, And our data was actually featured in a story by in Fast Company by Naomi Allen, who um, highlights that women's participation in the workforce is now at 57%, which is the lowest it's been since 1988. And she highlights that it's no coincidence that it has been that way because there's a mental health crisis amongst children. And so caretakers are raising their hand and saying, you know, one in five have voluntarily quit their jobs or plan to in order to better take care of their children um, from a recent poll that we did with Brightline. So just like people are opting out because they have to take care of what's at home. Um, And in fact, nearly 80% of parents reported spending time each day managing their kids' behavioral health. So, you know, really thinking about, what it takes to have an employee kind of show up, right? It's, it's a, it's a big thing. Um, and we even saw that, um, with our research with a American psychological association that eight in 10 workers in the United States said that mental health support from employers is a top consideration for future job searches. So really kind of understanding that and thinking about that, 
Um, John, what do you think about these companies should be doing this? I mean, on one side, it feels like we're putting too much pressure on corporations to solve societal issues, but is just is this like the way of the world? You know, is this just what companies have to do? Well, I think it's really interesting, right? Because companies, we always talk about we we really ask employees to bring their whole selves to work. Well, here's our whole self, right? Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot. So if you know, and I think there's been some really interesting business articles around co- companies that have actually dialed back on some of that, and I think that'll be a really interesting question about, you know, sort of, I think it was, sorry, I'll find it and put it in the show notes, but around the the corporate nanny state, right? Are corporations too much in our lives? And, mm. and is that creating uh, not only concerns and issues around privacy, but also just sort of opening up a can of worms around the level of, of support and care that they can bring? So I, I think there's sort of two sides to this. There's sort of the libertarian side. And then there's the other side about like, you know, if we're really going to ask employees um, to do all these things and and be part of a culture and and really, you know, bring their dignity and their integrity and all this stuff that we think are foundational to building great cultures and doing great work, well, then you got to pony up, right? We're going to have to really take mental health support to the next level. And we're going to have to create, you know, far more um, sort of customized, I think, in really nurturing environments. But hey, let's get on. I know we're, we've talked about a lot of this, super interesting, but let, let's talk about slack splaining. Can you explain to me what the heck is going on with this? <laughs> slack splaining. Um, it describes the practice of over-explaining through digital written communications to ensure there's not a misunderstanding. So for example, you add emojis to things, you add exclamation points, you add other positive like stimuli to say, hey, I'm telling you this in a tone that is meant to be taken positive, or I really want to explain this to you because, you know, make sure your the the verbal cues that we don't have are taken um, accounted for in in text messages, and you know the reason that Slack complaining has become so important is because there's just a lot of miscommunication we've had. Um, during the pandemic, we saw um, that office workers, 91% of them had digital messages misunderstood or misinterpreted at work. And for 20% of them, that misinterpretation caused them actually to get reprimanded, demoted, oh, or wow. even fired. So the the importance of like that clear communication is, is a really big one. And with Grammarly, we found earlier this year that poor communications is costing businesses over um, 1.2 trillion this year, hmm. um, and they three fourths of business leaders report that their com- com- company underestimates the cost of this poor communication. So hmm. I don't know, John, what you think about that, but do you find yourself slack explaining? Like, <laughs> what do you think the future of this is? Do you think bots will just take over? I mean, I think there's there's got to be easier solutions than putting emojis to everything. Uh, yeah, no doubt. So uh, I'm guilty, like maybe many parents of, of, of my generation of sending, um, you know, texts that look like a, uh, a PhD dissertation with a few <laughs> emojis in, and then I get a GR eight back from my daughter, Nina. Um, but yeah, I, I think what's really interesting about this is that we have a workplace that's become just incredibly diverse, not only in, in terms of, of culture, but also of age. Right. I think we've shared some of that data that you've got, 
you know, boomers that, that are moving into retirement that now are really actively looking for sort of consulting and fractional ways to continue working. All that's related to the, to the data that we were talking about earlier. Um, but I think it gets real interesting around sort of um, definitely AI. I think that's interesting. I don't know if we need Duolingo for the different generations to <laughs> be able to get onto one platform. But I think there's a positive thing in this, which is that you do have a range of different viewpoints and sort of uh, people sort of communicating in different ways. And I don't know, maybe it's a little bit of a UN inside businesses. I don't know. Tell me what you think. Yeah, I mean, I my point of view is that bots and AI will come solve this. I don't know if you use like Gmail and smart communication tools, but honestly, sometimes like Microsoft or Gmail they respond better than I would respond and more neutral and natural and, and happy. Oh. And so I'm like, Oh, I've, you know, eventually I'll just be able to talk, talk into my, my microphone and they'll rewrite my sentence and they'll probably rewrite it based on your workplace personality. And so if you're like a direct communicator, I will respond directly. If you're an emotional communicator, the bot will know to respond emotionally and then we'll get off email. Cause I think email like what we saw in Grammarly is people spend half of their work week doing these digital communications. And I kind of think they're a waste of time. So if there's a way to cut through that, it'd be a lot better. Right. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm excited for the future of bots to take over. Nice. Well, speaking of bots, <laughs> this is our last quick story on, on technology. So I thought this was really interesting. We, um, we have a, uh, an interesting sort of perspective on the, um, the United States Innovation and Competitive Act, Competition Act rather, um, USICA, which actually got passed yesterday. And um, this is a really interesting, um, you know, bill, $280 billion bill that got passed by the House. And this is um, really focused on kind of really onshoring technology back in the U.S., and, uh, you know, I, I think the broader trend in here is that we used to have just-in-time just supply chains. And I think now we're looking at just-in-case supply chains. And that's really what this is about. It's particularly focused on, on chips. And so, you know, one of the things that this does is offer, authorize $100 billion over five years on all kinds of new tech infrastructure, including sort of building more um, American-based uh, chip production. And I, I was totally struck by this fact this week, but did you know that Taiwan accounts for 66% of all chip production in the world? And and so I thought no. you know, with that, <laughs> you know, this isn't just really a supply chain issue, but it's really a national security issue, right? With all the um, the saber rattling that's sort of going on right now and, and the, the conflict emerging between sort of China in Taiwan over sovereignty, over Taiwan sovereignty. So, I mean, I thought yeah. that was an interesting sort of uh, move here that they got bipartisan support. But Libby, I mean, we have seen in our data that there was a sense of understanding of supply chain issues. You know, um, you know, we found that, um, you know, people were fairly sympathetic early on in the crisis. Um, I think it was something like, you know, 63% of Americans agreed that that the supply chain problems were understandable given all the global circumstances of the pandemic and the Russia-Ukraine war, et cetera. But, you know, chips are in everything now, right? 
Uh, and so yeah. if you don't have them, I mean, how do you sort of see this bill playing out and, and really what's the long-term future for, uh, for bringing ships back on shore? Well, so, uh, one thing that I was listening to that I thought was really interesting this week was, um, Peter Diamandos, the, the guy who did X, uh, X prize and everything, this, yeah. the abundance singular university, he has a podcast and, and the theme of that podcast was if I highlight it, it was called like, basically, um, manufacturing is the new sexy, you know, like, totally. and it's, it's basically like, if you think about Taiwan or China, you know, their I guess their top talent isn't just going to tech places. It's going into manufacturing. And, and then if you look historically back into how, you know, the U S built its strength in manufacturing and, and understanding it from that lens, um, manufacturing becomes really important, like owning our own supply chain, owning our, our ability to create our own technology, not only from a military aspect, but from just our ability to produce technology and, and to be on our own is, is important. Um, and I was thinking about that because I was like, oh, that's so interesting. Like, how do you get people then re-engaged in manufacturing and thinking that manufacturing is sexy and like, you know, driving talent there? And I think this um, this bill actually does that. And it, it gets us back onto kind of the right track of being able to, um, being able to not only protect ourselves, but also innovate in the way in which we need to. Right. Um, and so it's, it seems like a, a positive sign. Um, but it's also just interesting that for, for me, I never thought of manufacturing as something interesting. I've always thought of it as just something that happens, um, but, you know, thinking about it really as a source of innovation is, is kind of an exciting thing to, to calibrate around, especially from a historical context. Well, it, it totally makes sense. And obviously just the sophistication of, of devices, whether it's a, a refrigerator or a, you know, or a phone is just taken on whole new levels of, of sort of, uh, you know, power. Anyway, listen, hey, let's uh, let's leave it there. We kind of went a little bit longer. Sorry about that, but I love these stories. I always love chatting with you. Uh, yeah. one, sh one show note, Libby, we're actually dropping, mm -hmm. <laughs> dropping. our chairman, uh, Mark Penn, uh, who is the chairman of the Harris Poll, is going to share a brand new Harvard Harris Poll, which uh, looks at this month. And we're going to uh, drop that this afternoon. It should be out public, and we'll talk about it uh, on next week's show. But I Can't think wait. that is it. That's it for America this week. We welcome, as Libby said, we welcome polling ideas. So please drop us a note on LinkedIn or Twitter. That's Libby Rodney uh, or and John Gersma. And please <laughs> also subscribe to our America This Week newsletter you can find on LinkedIn. And as always, if you liked any of this, please uh, leave us a review. Libby, have yourself a great weekend, okay? You too, John. Talk to you next week. All right. Take care, everybody.